Thank you, dear God, for the opportunity to be here at the same conference, 14th annual Amen conference. So exciting to hear the developments, uh, the international scope of this organization, and the impact it's having on the individual lives of the individual patient, medical and dental. So we just want to praise you, invite your presence now as we share. Let self be hidden and let you come forward. We pray in your name. Amen. So, all right, investment is a hot topic. Ford Magazine publishes the richest men in the world. Bill Gates was once one of them, founder of Microsoft followed by Warren Buffett back in my days. Today, it is actually Jeff Bezos. He's actually, he was just 150 billion, maybe a little less after the stock market went down, but nevertheless, the richest man uh, in modern times. So investment is a hot topic, and uh, I too have been an investor back in the year 2000, and I'm talking spiritually and materially. Back in the year 2000, I, I came out of a very deep, uh, deep depression, literally, uh, spiritual, mental, because I had just started a medical practice and I went through a severe financial downturn to the point that I actually was depressed for months. And I came out of it, it was actually a close to bankruptcy situation. You can read about, you can actually listen to the audio verses there. Um, so I kind of learned from that, that basically we are all stewards. We own nothing. Everything we have and everything we, we think we are is actually his. It's a trust from him. And that is what I took out of that. I returned to the word for direction. And uh, one of the texts that really came home to me was the one in Matthew 7 where it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And you know what happened to the man who didn't, who built on sand. So he essentially was saying, those who hear these words and act upon them. They were both believers, actually, both. Every, both heard, but one acted and one didn't. So essentially, that was a wise man. And so I, I took that seriously, and I decided I was going to implement the, the gospel as, as much as possible with the Lord's help. And so I reaffirmed my commitment to stewardship. It led to a revival in my personal life and my family life and my practice life. That's where actually the inception of what I think Amen started in my own personal life because basically I began to realize my mission field was in the practice with the individual patient, not in church as personal ministries leader, which I was. It was in the practice. And it was really quite revealing because it, it really energized my practice. And, and I think any AMEN members will tell you that. It truly energized my practice. It truly made me come to a tremendous sense of satisfaction in medical practice, which I never had before. So I think it's something that I really learned. And um, it, it, I was impressed in studying the testimonies and ministry of healing that really we needed to share this. So that led to a luncheon at ASI in Cincinnati in summer 2004 which led to the first gathering of the modern-day medical evangelists at Cahada Springs, Georgia, in the year 2005. Elder Finley spearheaded that. He actually, he actually encouraged us. He said, you, get, you come together, and I'll come and speak. So he spoke, and that's when we launched Amen as an organization in the, year, in the spring of 2005. And we organized that first conference in the, in, the, in, the, in the fall right here in San Diego. And it was quite, a, it was quite an experience because we, like the guy was talking about in the Philippines, we had nothing either. We started with nothing. We went in that conference not knowing how we were going to fund it even. And the Lord worked out everything, so today we're here 14 conferences later. I think it's powerful. So anyway, it's, um, I served as the first president for three years, and then the additional two years as an appointed board member. But I want to tell you the example of the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3 is an interesting text, which is interesting. You know why I got to it? Because it is in the New Testament. Jesus quoted it in his very first temptation. And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manner which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. 
What did he do it for? He did it so that you will understand that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So I got to ask you this question. Did God need to know their hearts? It's a simple answer. Does God know your heart? Believe me, he does. He didn't know, didn't know their hearts. I didn't have to study theology to figure this out. I just kind of extrapolated. He didn't even know their hearts. They need to know their own hearts. He was basically getting to the point, hey, you don't know your own heart. I led you to the wilderness. I made you hungry. I allowed you to be hungry. I allowed you to be thirsty. I provided man. I provided water from the rack because I want to make sure you understand you don't know your own heart. I don't even know your heart. I know your heart. I want you to know your own heart. And that's basically what he was getting at. The fact is, you don't know your own heart. I don't know my own heart. We don't know our own hearts. That is so scary. It is real. It is tangible because we think we know our hearts. We're self-deceived so often. Well, we have to give him our will. And only in returning the will to him do we get to know our own hearts because it is a voluntary thing. Well, the year 2016, I decided to do just that. I realized that everything I did was literally tainted with self. I was basically, everything I did had something about me. I was at the center of it, even in ministry, it was about me and my involvement in ministry. It was with Naren James and his involvement in ministry. It was, I just began to realize it was a lot of it was really about me. So I got on my knees a lot and started praying, Lord, I really don't know my heart. I, I don't know my heart. I really want to focus on what is important to you. And so I got to ask you the question, your engagement in ministry, your efforts in ministry, which I'm talking to leaders here, by the way. I've sat at every table here throughout this weekend. I can tell you Every single person is a potential leader in a man, a potential board member, president, whatever. You are all leaders in your own capacity. The reality is, I prayed seriously and I said, Lord, reveal to me what is your priority because I am focusing on my priority. And he revealed to me one important thing that I, I guess I should have known this as a seven-day advent. It's probably not new to you. The most important thing to God, in my opinion, is his character. I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, in the end, the whole great controversy is about God's character. Who is God? Is he who God says he is, or is he who Satan says he is? And every day in our lives, by our actions and our words, we, we determine whether we believe God or not. Eve did. Adam did. You know what happened. Every day you're faced with that same question. I had to face that myself. So I wanted to give something back to God. That's what happened. After, after you observe the love of God, you feel impressed. You cannot help but want to return something. The problem is there is nothing to return. There is nothing to return because you have nothing. Everything you have is his, including your professional capacity, your talent, your licensure, whatever it is, your board certification, I don't care what it is, it is already his, and you don't have anything to return to him. And I had nothing. So I realized I had nothing. I started searching for something. I started searching in my heart, what can I give to you as an act of love? Well, there is only one thing left. And it is a gift as well, but it's an irrevocable gift. It's like he gave the gift to you and then he threw away the code or threw away the keys. It is your free will, literally. That's something irrevocable. God cannot take it away, otherwise we'll all be robots. We're created free, totally free. As a matter of fact, the Calvary exists to, to actually preserve our freedom. Without Calvary, we will not have freedom. Jesus valued our individuality. He valued our freedom so much to choose him or not to choose him that he was willing to die on Calvary to preserve a free world with free beings. To choose him or not to choose him, it's quite impressive. It's not, I didn't do the theology thing, but I tell you, it was quite impressive indeed to, to realize that. So, the, the, it, it, we, in the end, we're all going to have to be safe to save. God cannot afford to have one iota of distrust in heaven. He cannot afford, in the ceaseless ages of eternity, to have one individual, one created being, 
who decides that I don't think God is who he is? Because we have the problem all over again. He cannot afford it. So all of us have to be safe to say we have to come to a point of complete rest. And I needed to get to that. So we have to have a healthy distrust of self. So look at the message of Laodicea. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. All right, this is really impressive, right? So I'm, I'm studying this year 2016. By the way, I was diagnosed, I didn't tell you, in the midst of amen, I have to drag track a little, in the midst of amen involvement as president, I was diagnosed with colon cancer at 45 years of age. I was having this wrestling time with God. I was praying for an expanded ministry, and sometime after that, it occurred to me that people who had expanded ministry or people who had embraced mortality, they actually faced near death. The Hebrew boys before the furnace, uh, Esther before the king, you can name them. There are multiple of them. Well, sure enough, I had my own near-death experience. A few weeks after that, I was about a bleeding. I ended up in a colonoscopy. Long story short, I ended up in a major surgery. I put my colon out. Stage 1 disease. 45 years of age. No risk factors. So I want to make sure you guys, vegans, understand this. No risk factor. I've been a vegan for years. And basically, I also had no family history. I was below the age of screening. But this happened to me. So basically, what happened? I began to read now in the year 2016, nine years after my initial diagnosis. I recovered from it. I was back to work and everything. Made a few changes in my practice. I dropped off the obstetrics and stayed in the more less stressful areas. But nevertheless, I began to realize as I read this, where he says, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I began to reflect on this. And I realized, you know what? I always started this this way, and I'm sure you tend to do this as well. I began to realize, it's not about Laodicea, the nebulous church out there, those church people. No, 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 it's me. I am the Laodicean. By the way, you're the Laodicean too. It's us, the, 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 the final church. And I began to pray, Lord, look, I'm the Laodicean. I accept your diagnosis. I accept your assessment of me that I am lukewarm. I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is the ultimate fake news versus the real news. This is the real news, what Jesus is saying. The fake news is what we think we are. You see, the true witness has the ultimate perspective. My experience of asking God to give me, I asked God to give me gold, the ice salt, the white raiment. Well, in August of 2016, I'm praying this. I end up in the gym somewhere in the early August. I developed back pain sometime after that, mild to moderate to severe. For me, it was a gym injury. I thought, it's not a big deal. It's nine years. Never thought of cancer. I went for a PET scan, massive tumor, orange size on my L2 vertebrae, compressing the nerves, literally trying to kill me. And not only that, my left lung base as well. I, my pain was so severe, I, was, I could not sleep at all. I went, on, I went on to have cyberknife radiation, immunotherapy. You guys who are oncology know this stuff well. Sometime in the year April, all of this is going on. I'm still in serious disease. I'm actually losing weight. I am actually in severe pain, despite all the treatments. You know, I, I got to tell you, where it comes to knowing God's will is quite impressive. I go to see a neurosurgeon, good colleague of mine, gave me a cell phone number. Everybody is so wonderful to me, right? So I go in and I say, Lord, your will be done. Your will is perfect. I trust you. Your will be done. I don't wanna, I'm not going to ask for a good report. I just, your will be done. I go in, the guy calls me in the room and he says, look, I want to show you this MRI. He said, this thing is trying to kill you, man. He said, this thing is worse. He said, not only didn't, it didn't arrest the disease, it actually is advancing like crazy. He said, you need surgery, you need it soon. So I don't like surgery. Who likes surgery? I know there are a few surgeons out there. I like you guys, I just don't like surgery. So anyway, I, so especially back surgery, I had enough patients with back surgery, I didn't want to go through surgery. So I told him, I said, look, I don't want to do back surgery. Let's try one more bottle radiation. Uh, we tried that again. Just before, like around April of that year, last year only, you know, I am walking through my office, 
I'm holding on. I'm seeing 30 patients that day. I'm holding on to the furniture to get around. My pain became so severe. So I called the guy up. I said, hey, this is really serious. He said, come on in. I'll see you between cases. Sees me on Friday morning. He looked at the MRI. He said to me, you're going to, you're going to be admitted today. You're having surgery in the morning. Full stop. And I said, I guess you're the doctor. And I went on. We were admitted that day, and basically, I went through a major surgery. And after that, I am lying in my bed. All of this is happening in the context of a severe lack of planning on my part. I got diagnosed nine years ago. I had no succession planning whatsoever. I'm the sole owner of my practice. This is a serious problem. I'm now in not only in medical problem, I got a financial problem because everything that was an asset now became a liability. A medical building, a medical practice, employees, everything. So essentially what I did, within three months, sold the practice, divested two mass, big rural health clinics, medium size, 30 employees, five part-time, divested all that, uh, committed to, the, to selling the building at a price that was substantially discounted because there was really no way around it. You just had to agree to it. And the guys were very good. I really, I really felt I had to give them a break because they were right across the street from me and they bought the practice. It was a dark time. I am lying in bed with a, with a bedside commode on one side, and, uh, and a walker on the other side, and I'm like, and my wife is in another room because why would both of us stay up all night? Might as well one of us get some sleep, right? So anyway, I'm lying in there, and I am going through a very dark time, guys. I got to know my heart indeed. I got to know my heart, literally. I found out at that point that everything in my identity was tied to my profession and what I owned. Despite all my statements of being insured, I realized I owned it. I really owned it. If I didn't own it, I wouldn't be so agonizing over it. I really owned it. So I really had to come to grips with the fact that I owned it, that I was still my heart. I got to know my heart. I realized I was truly lukewarm. I realized I was truly wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, after that, after the surgery, the CA, the PET scans, everything kept getting worse. Literally, nothing is improving. Nothing. There was a brief bout where that CA went down after the surgery was expected because the tumor burden was down. But boy, it just kept shooting up after that, and I'm... Finally, the, the oncologist sat down and he said to me, look, I know you're opposed to chemotherapy. I know you had a bad experience the last time. He said, this is it. You got chemotherapy, you got hospice. You make your choice. You're chemotherapy or hospice. You got a fork in the road. Prayed about it a lot. Finally decided I might as well do it. After all, what's the worst case scenario? The Lord has made it in such a way that's the only option left. So I went through the chemotherapy. I started this uh, bout of oxaloplatin and, uh, you know, Avastin and, or as the load at the same time. Boy, I hated it. I hate chemotherapy. I hope all of you hate it too because it should be hated. It's horrible. Side effects are terrible. I still have my hair. I'm so happy with that. That was obviously most important to me. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I have to tell you this. So I finished about, and you know, within a week, my back pain resolved totally almost. It was amazing. I went back to see this guy, and the CEA dropped in half. He looked at me. He said, you know, I don't know what's going on here. He said, I've never seen a response like this. He said, he said, really, you are the 95th percentile of response. Say you're above average. I said, no, 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 it's a miracle, man. You don't understand miracles, do you? It's a miracle. God works through certain things. I, this is not chemotherapy. That's not chemotherapy response. This is a divine intervention, right? That's the truth. Let's say amen to that. That's true. So anyway, I got to introduce you to the topic, which I, which I do have 12 minutes left. So anyway, go for it. So the, the topic is spiritual entrepreneurship. So I gave you the preamble to kind of get you to this whole investment thing, right? So what happens in Luke 16, this is where I got this message. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, an accusation was brought to him by this man who was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you could no longer be steward. This is really weird, isn't it? Why in the world would Jesus, the master himself, 
the righteous master use an unrighteous chord to teach a spiritual lesson. I can't figure it out. That's what intrigued me about this. That's why I, I kind of end up focusing on like a laser beam because there's something here the master's trying to teach us, right? So what did, what did this steward say? He said to himself, what shall I do? I, I'm t- I, can't, I can't beg, I can't dig. I, I know what I'll do. What did he do? He gave a discount. He gave a 20% discount to one. He gave 50% discount to the other. All at his master's expense. He's truly unrighteous. He's the kind of guy you want to fire on the spot. He's the kind of guy that really is disloyal. But Jesus is trying to make a point. So you don't want to get lost in the parable. The parable is not trying to teach you that. Dishonesty. The parable is trying to teach you something else, right? So Luke 16 going on, the steward said, what shall I do, okay? And he gives the discount to his master. We too individually have an accountability gift to our maker. We have an accountability gift to our maker, right? With freedom comes responsibility and accountability. So what does the master? He commends him for his shrewdness, right? He commends him for the children of this age, he said, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. This unrighteous steward was commended not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. Shrewdness is not a term we use much in English anymore, right? For the believer, success must be defined in the context of eternity. Otherwise, John the Baptist, Stephen, all the apostles, as well as all the martyrs from the Reformation and beyond, would be absolute failures. They died early. They died early. It would be absolutely a failure, literally. If we define life, and we have to be cautious with this. We're teaching the health message. We teach longevity. Well, I'm telling you, that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the holy grail of life. The holy grail is to meet the purpose that God has for you. So keep that in mind. That is scripturally quite accurate. Well, 1 Corinthians, we read about Paul and Silas in the encounter with Jailer in Philippi. What happens there, right? He says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Believe? That's pretty simple. I can believe. But the devils believe and they tremble, right? So really what he was getting at is your belief has to be an action word. It must be more than intellectual assent to truth. It's not sufficient. Truth must be integrated to the psyche. It must be acted upon. Abraham believed God and he left Ur the Chaldees. He went on and said, hey, I'm going to be the father of a great nation, notwithstanding the fact that he's totally old beyond the time of, of having children. Noah believed God. He built an ark on dry ground without any history of rain, much less a flood. All of Matthew 25 is written to believers, you and I both. Ten virgins, part of the talents, the final judgment. All to believers, not unbelievers. They all felt they were getting to heaven. They were confident they were going to be in heaven. Only to be heard, I never knew you. A very serious thing. So these accounts tell us that, uh, that many who think they're secure in their salvation will be surprised and self-deceived. So I have to ask you today, does your day-to-day priorities reflect belief or just an intellectual assent of truth? Do they reflect biblical definition of, uh, uh, of belief, which is tangible action? Well, we get, the, we get the whole idea of what is the biblical definition in Jeremiah 9, where it says, Let not a wise man glory in his wisdom, let not a mighty man glory in his might, let, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. That is the definition. That is the ultimate holy grail, right? The holy grail for the believer is intimacy with God. That's what, that's what Revelation 3 is all about. He said, I will suffer you and you with me. The ultimate holy grail of the Christian should be intimacy with the Savior, knowing him personally. It is the ultimate. After all, that's what heaven consists of. It's a relationship. It's not the streets of gold. I hate to disappoint you guys. I'm talking about investing here, right? It's a relationship. Do you know him or, do you, or don't? And you get to know him. You get to love him terribly, right? The essence of any love relationship is realignment of priorities toward the one you love. You cannot love someone you do not know, and I have to come to realize that. So I got to ask you this, right? Who is an entrepreneur? Merriam-Webster Dictionary said, a person who organizes and operates a business or businesses take on greater normal financial risk in order to do so. 
That's the definition uh, from Merriam-Webster. Who's a spiritual entrepreneur? This is my definition. A person who invests in a proclamation of the gospel, taking on greater normal personal risk to his material possessions, but most important to his life and liberty itself in order to do so. Hebrews 11 tells us about Abraham. What did he do? He saw the city whose foundation and, and builder and maker is God, right? Now, like Abraham, we must see the city made without hands. Our day-to-day thinking must embrace eternity. Hebrews 11, continuing, Moses, by faith, what did he do? He endured a scene that was invisible. He departed Egypt. He left everything, went out with the people of God because he wanted to go with him who was invisible. So we got to look beyond eternity. We got to know, we got to see the new Jerusalem. We got to see him who was invisible. We always have to be cognizant of his sovereignty. So Paul is a spiritual entrepreneur. You, you heard the story we started in the last quarter. James and Ellen White were spiritual entrepreneurs, totally spent on pioneering work, tediously teaching, publishing, preaching. Joseph Bates, one of the other founders, spending all of his means towards the present truth, has nothing left, nothing left, literally. He goes down, and his wife, Purdy, needs butter. Yes, the real butter, guys. Real butter, okay? Went to get a real butter. He doesn't have any money left. He goes to the post office. The money was sent two weeks before. He gets it. We need to have more stories like that. Intensity, a passion about it. And then you go on to people like Jay and Andrews. You have modern-day people. But I have to spend the last few minutes I have on Amen itself. See, we have to understand that, that unless we start doing some things that are outlandish, so outlandish that our mental capacity comes to question, we're not fully vested. We're not prepared for heaven. As the culture becomes more secular humanistic, we're going to have to look different. We're going to have to be insane, literally, like, they, like, like Festus told Paul. We have to join the people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, doing things that look really, really, really insane. You know the rich young ruler, he didn't make a good investment. So what is it to be a spiritual entrepreneur today? Shrewdness, right? He was commended for shrewdness. And that is to act prudently about the things as unbelievers do in regarding earthly things. That's the one definition I got. Well, indeed, uh, what is a contemporary example of shrewdness? There's lots, but I want to really get to amen, really. How can we apply the passion, the innovation, the ideas? We have to transform ideas into fixed assets. That's what Jeff Bezos did. He took a concept. He translated into fixed asset, our concept. Our, our end game has to be souls, souls into his kingdom. That, that is our currency. That's how we define success, and we have to really be intent on it. So what would be a spiritual entrepreneur today? Luke 16, 11, he continues saying, unrighteous mammon, you're exchanging that. for You can read the whole account. We have to be faithful in the use of material resources, faithful in the use of our time and talents, passion for what God is passionate about. We must experience asking for God's perspective. We have to ask for God's perspective, and that's what I did. My will. You have to entrust your will also. See, it's fast approaching. Eternity is fast approaching. One thing is remembered, our impact for eternity. That's the only thing that left in the end. Our work, therefore, must be transgenerational. We need to know who God is to experience the rest mentioned in Hebrews 4. We have to be like the two spies, not like the ten spies, Joshua and Caleb. We have to be like them. We have to absolutely come to rest in God. That's what Hebrews 4 is about. You can read it. They didn't enter into my rest because of unbelief. If we're going to enter into rest, we have to get to the point of believing him totally. So what would a spiritual entrepreneurship in Amen look like today? Well, in the year 2005, 2007, I shared a mission, uh, uh, my vision. You can read about it. It's the Lord's vision. I just happen to be a conduit. You can read about it in, um, in the, uh, you can hear it in the verse. But soul winning has to be primary and not, not profit making. We must end these silos that we have, all of us working individual. We have to collaborate a lot. We must figure out the practical application of medical and health evangelism. I think I figured it out, really. I'll tell you what I figured out. It's a combined ministry of Christ, preach at healing, teaching, and preaching probably in that order. 
That's what his ministry is all about. So whether we do it individually, a pastor or a physician or a dentist, or whether we do it collectively, organizationally, we must meet that goal. That's how I see it. So that's purely my opinion. You can research it some more. Uh, we must, uh, whether in private practice, employed physician, nonprofit, it doesn't matter. It's how you do it. It's not. It's about a motivation. This is not. It's not a one side fits all. We must achieve the unity. We got to get our organization act together. We have to be able to work together at all times, and we are, and that's the exciting part about this. We must achieve the unity of John 17, and this can only be achieved by the outpouring of the latter rain. That's our greatest need, and it should be our first work, right? You guys hear the quote? It is our greatest need and should be our first work, which is to pray for the outpouring. When, when we do that, a few things will happen. The John the Baptist principle, he must increase and I must decrease, will become paramount. It must become paramount. Everything becomes subservient to his ultimate goal. We must dream. I have a dream of effective ministry where the objective is to win souls by presenting the character of God. We will be more concerned with the progress of the work than about, than about our visibility in the work or our control over it. It doesn't matter. We must be so concerned and so excited about our going forward. We must have a servant attitude prevailing at all times. Practical implementations of medical evangelism regime. Like church, the body of Christ, every member must fit, find his or her place in ministry. Every single one of you. I don't care. Physician, dentist, spouse of a physician or dentist. Uh, uh, some other health aspect. We need a whole team. Physician, dentist is just a part of it. You need a whole team to make this happen. Members must be engaged in forming action teams. We did that some. Life and Health Network came out of that. The medical evangelists came out of that. We did that in 2006. We must, I gotta share some far-reaching ideas. We must reform our educational institutions to reflect a transgenerational commitment in the test, in, in, to, to, the, to the strategic planning. We have to reform these institutions. We must reform our health institutions to where they truly reflect the principles outlined in the testimonies of the Ministry of Healing. If you think they already reflect it, you don't need to reform them. I submit to you they need reform. I submit to your educational system needs reform. Okay? We must, this may require some of our physicians and dentists migrating back to our institutions here and overseas in order to be effective. We can't blame boards and administrators if we, ha we do not have committed 70 Adventist health professionals in these institutions who can provide professional leadership. And I'm saying that as one who departed Advent Adventist uh, medical institution, by the way. But we need to do that. Finally, amen, and, uh, and these conferences must serve as a practical role as a think tank for ideas for the health work at large, the denominational work, the self-supporting work, as well as privately owned work. After all of this, we must place... This is a place where we all meet. This is what I enjoy about this and all the meeting across the table where I meet with people. I realize everybody meets here. This is exciting stuff. Everybody meets here. Whether you're in private practice, whether you're employed professional, whether you're in denominational work, non-denominational work, whether you're in academia, whether you're in academia in Adventist institution or non-Adventist, we all meet here. Everybody meets here. Isn't that exciting? Everybody meets here. This is a think tank. This is really an amazing opportunity for us to actually collaborate. And, and a lot of the work in Amen actually is not happening organizationally. It's happening at the tables. It's happening with you meeting other people. It's happening with you coming up with new ideas. I just got an invitation. I should go to India. Somebody wants me to go there and launch Amen India. I'll say, hey, it's a great idea. Let me look at my schedule. But I'm saying these things are happening. So, in the end, according to my stop clock, I got three minutes, so I'm going to go with it. So anyway, um, in the end, what did it say to Philadelphia? I love the message of Philadelphia. We tend to think the message of D.C. is our message only. The message of Philadelphia is ours also to claim what do you say to Philadelphia? Behold, I've set to you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have little strength. You have kept my word, not denied my name. When we take the Philadelphia attitude, we'll have the Philadelphia response from the master. 
He will give an open door when we take on his work. So it has to be a sacrificial work. Remember Capernaum, where it said that Jesus could not do any miracles, so he did a few miracles. Why? Because of their unbelief, right? If we take on a Philadelphia attitude, it's an attitude of belief. And when that happens, doors will be open that we never, never thought. We'll be like, we need to be like Joshua and Caleb and not like the other ten spies. See, God wants to do the same for us collectively in Amen if we take on a Philadelphia attitude. So I conclude by saying, look, Mark 1, 14 to 15, my last text. What did Jesus go out and say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, the same thing. It's the gospel all over again. It's at the end. See, the gospel must be all-consuming. We must be passionate about who God is, his character. We must be willing to see all who are involved in terms of eternal realities. We must be eager to innovate and share in the good news. We must surrender our free will to God to do what is best for us, you and me. We must acknowledge that we're unable to surrender our free will to God without knowing who he is. If you have difficulty surrendering to God, which, by the way, I did. There was a period of time I could not pray the prayer, Lord, have your will be done. Especially after that MRI, I didn't want to pray it anymore. It's not a good prayer. I didn't like the fact that I prayed your will be done and the MRI was worse. But he was still working on something perfect. We need, we need practical experience. We, must, we, not, we can't limit our learning to be cognitive. It has to be practical. We, we are uniquely designed by God who knows our hearts. So finally, I go back to the very basics of faith. Bible study, prayer, and faith-based decision making. That's my simple prescription to you. Nothing more. I don't have any outlandish prescription. It's the same old thing. It's new, actually. You know, Jesus is very... What I, what I really love of the Gospels is Jesus was always on the, on the Word. What's in the Scriptures? How read us out? You err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Beginning of Moses and the prophets and walk to, to Emmaus. Beginning of Moses and the prophets? He could have showed his hand with the, with the, with the nail print. No, no, no. Beginning of Moses and the prophets. And by the way, in rich uh, Lazarus and the, that came back from the dead, he said, no, no, no. Even if one came back from the dead, they won't believe. They have Moses and the prophets. If they can't believe that, not even one comes back from the dead. So I go back to Bible study. You can't get beyond that. So I just throw it to you four groups of people here today, four groups in the next minute, and you can decide in your own heart. Four, one group doesn't know the Lord totally, never given your life to the Lord. I challenge you today to give your heart to him because I, I wouldn't do it any different. Everything he did to me was perfect. He restored me completely. I would not do anything different. I love him for who he is. I love everything he did for me. I hated the process. I love the results. Okay? Surrender your... The next group is a surrender. No, the next group is going to say, I want to surrender my will to you, Lord. Right? Surrender the will. That's the second group. The third group is going to say, Lord, I'm not willing to surrender my will. I just don't know you enough. I want to know you better. That's, that's perfectly fine. God loves you. And if you're not ready, he'll say, I'll, I'll, get to, I'll let, make sure you know me better. And the last group is, will say, I know you. I've embarked on a journey. I just want your spirit to be poured out upon me so I may remain steadfast and I may remain completely committed to what you've asked me to do. That's my talk tonight. Thank you very much for giving me the time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.